You're listening to episode 220 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. Took me a second to get those numbers there. I was trying to do Kale's thing. He always like flashes the numbers for the YouTuber. And I, <laughs> I put 2122, two, two, so oh. apparently this is episode 2,122. Wow. Uh, <laughs> well, when I was putting the show together, I thought it was episode 620. So, uh, you know, we're both all over the map. Do you ever do that? Like, I had a thought recently where I think I made a typo when I was, like, putting the the episode up, like, on YouTube or something. Mm -hmm. And I accidentally put, like, a thousand. And I was like, how old will I be when we hit 1,000 episodes, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's that's years, you know. That's that's something like 12 years, right? Somewhere in that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Fourteen years. I don't know. It's a really long time. I really I like to envision us though as like grandfathers and we're still doing the show. <laughs> I don't know, man. If I still have shit to say about comics when I'm a grandpa, a grandma, then uh, <laughs> it might be time to put me out back because this is definitely a young man's game. It's a young man's game. Oh. Yeah. So uh, today on the show, it's actually going to be just Pete and I, the dynamic duo, as we uh, affectionately refer to ourselves. Cream of the crop. Yes. uh, (laughs) The rest of them couldn't hack it. So they're off. Uh, This is only our second show of the new year, and we're already down to two. (laughs) Well, you know, I think it's a new year. It's an opportunity to try, you know, uh, little iterations on the formula. Maybe we just fire everybody else, you know? (laughs) Listen, that's not a bad idea. Uh, Marco's going to edit this episode still, I think, so maybe he can keep his job. We'll see how that goes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's safe. (laughs) He's safe because he he performs a function very well. It's true. Yes. He's functionally useful. He's nothing if not a tool. (laughs) In many ways. Uh, The lack of the rest of the cast doesn't mean we're not going to have a good time. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. This is actually a huge week in comics. Uh, yeah, lots of news. Yeah, this is a a huge week with ref- with reference to uh, all the big books. I mean, one of the biggest weeks in a long time in terms of releases. Uh, we got the start of Future State this week, the end of Death Metal. We got um, the release of Eternals, which is big for Marvel, and... The High Republic number one, which uh, was actually sold out at Midtown Comics. I wow, even really? Get a copy. Yeah. What's yep. High Republic? Is that the? So that's the new era that Star Wars is going to be focused on. Oh, okay. Yeah. So all the movies, all the books, all the comics will be focused on the High Republic going forward. I don't know why my mind went to that. Um, that like magic book that they had a while ago, where it was like Marvel's whole like. It's like the, you know, kind of like magic X-Men where they're like teaching. I was like, is it like something like that? Like some kind of magic event or something? Oh, I heard High Republic. Strange you know? Academy. Yeah, yeah. I guess I heard Republic. I should have guessed Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is like pre, it's, it's pre the films, pre all the films, but post the old Republic. So this is like the okay. height of the height of the powers of jedi and everything is so great uh yoda's in it and he's young and and fresh spry so spry yoda that's cool which who's writing it actually uh both 
members of the creative team were uh, foreign to me as far as me knowing who they were. Cool. Um, yeah, I'll good tell for you them. Then, the moment. I mean, it sold out at Midtown on Wednesday, so like that's that's pretty that's pretty intense. Yeah, that's legit. Yeah, that's a like, that's a legit sellout. Yeah, like if uh, I mean, obviously, like you've got <laughs> the huge benefit of I'm sure that this is a thing that like will be a collector's item, and I'm sure that that was part of it or whatever. But yes. like, if this series ends up being good, like that could totally be some kingmaker shit, you know, and like put both of these people on the map. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't know if it was any good, but from what I've read, it is, and so, um, yeah. I wouldn't know if it was any good because I couldn't fucking get my hands on it. <laughs> I'm yeah, I'm not gonna lie, I'm a little salty, man. I, I you know I wanted it, so it's it's Kevin Scott and Ariel Anandito who, who who worked on the book. They wrote it and drew it respectively. Um, so. And and Midtown does a thing where they actually limit you to one copy of the higher profile books per person. Wow! So this sold out even with like, that caveat. Organically, not just people who are trying to snap it up to sell it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, pretty pretty cool for them. Absolutely. Before we dive too deep into everything, I do want to you know do the plug thing. Let you guys know where you can find us and how you can be a part of what we're doing. Um, we are the Comics Pals all over the internet. If you want us on social, at the Comics Pals, come chat with us. Um, we're, we're always posting memes and things like that. So we're, we're a decent follow, if I do say so myself. Um, come hang out over there. You can write to us at thecomicspals at gmail.com. You can get us on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube right now, that's awesome. Make sure you guys are subscribing to our channel. Make sure you guys are hitting that like button and dropping us a comment if you want to join the conversation. Uh, of course, we are on Discord. You can come join our Discord server. Uh, we're always having fun fun chats on the Discord. Uh, it's a good time, if I do say so myself. Um, yeah, the tons of different channels for you to, to join in on. Uh, different kinds of, of talks, video games, weeb stuff, comics, of course, whatever it is you're into. Our weeb chat is very lively. They're over there, like, watching a new anime or something, like, every other week or together. It's uh, It's been pretty cool. Yeah, it's nuts. Um, good, yeah, it's, it's it's good to see, though. It's good to see. That's It may not be for me, but, uh, you know. <laughs> you will not find either of us in that channel, but it is a very active conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of you guys, though. I do want to share some questions from you uh, and questions and comments that we got on some recent episodes. All right. So this first one is a question we got on uh, actually the last episode of the show, episode 219 over on YouTube, uh, which was, is Marvel at risk of losing audiences with phase four? And we got a question from Garrett Harshman who said, question, if you could change I'm sorry. If you got the chance to pitch a DC, to pitch DC a future state book, excuse me, what would it be, and who would you like creating it? That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, a lot of control. <laughs> if I could pitch a future state book, I guess that would mean that I'm immediately trapped by the fact that it is in the future state. So, um, I, I, it's tough. I, I. There are some characters whose futures I am compelled by. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman is in a weird spot post uh, Death Metal, so yeah, I'm not sure, um, you know what that'll what that's gonna look like. 
Um, I, I, I'm kind of compelled by a Grant Morrison return to Superman. I, I know that he's played with the future of Superman to some degree during Final Crisis. And I know that Future State is not so far in the future that it's, it would be, you know, unrelated to the rest of the yeah. books. But Grant Morrison getting to push Superman forward could be interesting. And I think that's something that I would like to see. Um, and as far as who, who I would like to see, uh, doing the art, I mean, his work with Liam Sharp on Green Lantern has been pretty incredible. Uh, so that's an option. But then also, uh, Gary Frank. Gary Frank and Jeff Johns had an incredible run on Superman, but I don't, I can't personally think of a, a, a Gary Frank Grant Morrison combo that we've ever seen before. So I would like to see them work together. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that being really cool. Yeah. Um. So for me, I think when I read this question earlier today, uh, the first thing that came to mind for me would be like if I'm in charge of of the line, I would love to put a static book front and center. Um. You know, we've we've talked about that a lot, right? Like, there's been that legal battle back and forth, back and forth. It's like finally resolved, and like you know, I know we talked a while ago about how um the uh, uh, milestone stuff is going to be like this, like these digital series and everything. And like, you know, not to say that that can't work, but you know, with the way that all the like stuff is getting moved around, like more and more and more, it's, it's like, I don't know. It's easy to see how things could get lost in the shuffle with what DC's doing. So like if I'm in charge and I can put a character over, like that's the character at DC. I like the most that needs to be put over. You know, so it's like an easy pick, right? Um, and to like, you know, swing it back to um, to uh, what I was like talking about in our kind of end of the year thing. Like, you know, as much as I want to see uh, him get his own X book, like whatever, put Russell Dodderman on it. I just want to see Russell Dodderman on a monthly book so I can get more I, from I Russell think, Dodderman. I, I don't think you can do that though. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind but of isn't this my dream team or do I have to go with somebody at DC? I, I I think you have to go with someone who, okay. who can work at DC. Yeah. All right. Then who do you who do you think would be a good artist for that? Who's in their stable right now? I think there are a lot of options. I mean, DC has so many uh, awesome artists. Um, oh boy. Um, I had an art artist at the top of my mind. Uh, oh yes, perfect. Uh, Dexter Soy. Dexter Soy would be incredible because. His style is very kinetic. He drew the Batman and the Outsiders book, which features Black Lightning as the as the primary oh, okay. character, and it, that always looked great. It's kind of like a almost like an anime style. Not okay. That that sounds not anime style, but like when you watch a really awesome dynamic looking anime, and it's got that fluidity to it. Yes, you mean Dexter yeah. Soy has that uh, style. Yo, I don't know who was on colors on this book, but I'm putting them on and on the art too. Yes, because yes. I'm looking at a, a like a just a, a page of that team, and it looks fucking sweet from volume three. It looks like so maybe that's yeah. I think that's where Dexter Soy was working. So all right, yeah, all right. So he could he could write or he could do the art, and then who do we have write it? I feel like. I want somebody who can do like I, I think it should be a book that's like lighter in tone, you know? Like I want it to be like a little bit more like 
you know, like friendly neighborhood kind of like he's dealing with local problems. It's not like to something too like nuts. So like somebody who's got pretty good comedy chops, I feel like is necessary. Like maybe like maybe like a Matt Fraction. That's interesting. Matt Fraction. Matt Fraction could pull that type of thing off. Like the kind of tone he brought to like the Jimmy Olsen book, you know, yeah. like I think I could see that working in a static book where it's like very like, you know just like focused on like Spider-Man kind of stories, right? Like, you know, smaller, smaller town kind of shit. I don't want to take over your, your pick, but uh, for the writer, I would choose NK Jemison, uh, who's been doing far sector. Uh, oh, true. Okay. Yeah. I feel like she, if that would be a, a fairly high profile book and I would love to see her get that kind of shot. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, in Far Sector writing Sojourner, she's writing a you know, not a like a like a young-ish character, certainly not a high school age person, but yeah. prob- I, the character strikes me as a young young adult. And mm-hmm. um I just think Jemison could bring a lot to um you know what a young black kid is going through with developing these powers and having to protect the city while being a high schooler and yada yada yada. And, like, you talked about, I think it was last week or, or whenever it was, we talked about about her recently um, and saying that, like, you really hope she sticks around, yeah. you know, and, like, that she, like, whatever project comes next, like, that would be, A, it's at DC, and B, like, you know, it would be a high-profile book if it came out and, and was good, you yeah. know? Um, so that seems like a good opportunity for sure. I just want a good static book, man. I don't care who's on it. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. Uh, and and we know it's coming, so uh, I don't think we have. I don't think we have long to wait. I, I just want to see that property handled right. I feel like it just has so much fucking potential. Like with the Bang Babies and everything. Like there's like such a rich, like palette to work with there. You know. Yeah. Uh, static is a cool character. I mean, we know that they're considering him for movies and stuff like that. So, you know. It's a it's it's a no brainer. Do it all, man. Video games, like whatever, man. <laughs> yeah, I'll play a static video game. Why not? Um. So we we got a couple of comments over on the YouTube from Catherine Stars. Uh, Catherine said, uh, "This this this first one is on um, the future of Black Panther episode we did two seventeen, and uh, they said." Ending this with Black Panther, that was rough, not in a bad way, uh, nothing you guys did was wrong, but it was heavy and hard to listen to at times because Chadwick Boseman's passing is still so painful. You guys had a very tasteful discussion and hearing different perspectives and ideas was great. I changed my mind a bit about how I think Marvel could move forward as before I hadn't wanted him recast, was opening was open to seeing Shuri as Black Panther. However, after this, hearing that they could recast if we waited long enough, perhaps that could work. I'm much more open to that idea, pushing back Black Panther 2 for that reason, so we can retain T'Challa as a character. Though, seeing Shuri take up the mantle would be neat to see a black woman in a leading role. However, maybe this isn't the right time for that specifically. Either way, it's not an easy thing to navigate, but I appreciate the care y'all had in discussing it. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed the discussion, and I'm glad that, um... I'm glad that, like, you were challenged by it uh, enough that you maybe like reconsidered how you felt in some way like that. That's really cool. Um, I, I definitely agree with you in terms of uh, wanting to see um, 
you know, like the idea of Shuri taking the lead role, you know, to see like a black woman in, in a leading role in an MCU movie, like, yeah, I'm all for that. I said it on the episode though. It's like I, I don't, I, I want to keep T'Challa and have that. You know, like let's have more than one Marvel movie that's led by a black hero. You know, um, we don't. It doesn't have to just be the Black Panther cast. You know. Yeah, and I think uh, as a to that point, there are op- there are opportunities for that down the road. Like Ironheart is a great example of a character who, yeah, they, she has ties to Iron Man, but she's very much her own person. And I think those ties. Um, make it a little bit more palatable to have her be the kind of character who can lead a movie successfully. Um, she's a, she's a great opportunity for that. Down the road, we know that the X Men are coming. Storm is another opportunity. Storm up until up until Black Panther, I would have told you Storm is the most popular black character. I, well, okay, maybe before Luke Cage, but sure. Storm sure. Storm traditionally, when you think of Black Hero, I think people thought of Storm. Yeah, I mean, right, like, Halle Berry playing her in, in 2000, right, was like, that's so fucking iconic. When I think Halle Berry, I think her in X-Men 2, you know? Yeah, and a lot of people came away from the X-Men uh, 90s show with Storm as one of their favorites. Yeah, that's true. So, And she was, like, a leader in uh, X-Men Evolution and, like, had... Like like uh you know a couple big storylines about like her backstory and everything like yeah she's always been a pretty prominent character like while I've been alive you know exactly so I I do think that again I'm not a fan of the check boxes thing so yeah just making Shuri Black Panther and making that be the way they go forward for the sake of oh hey we got a black woman in a lead role now like. I don't feel like that's a, necess- a necessity to do, especially when that's inevitable anyway. One day, Shuri will be Black Panther on screen. I'm not arguing for or against that. I'm arguing to keep T'Challa. Those are different conversations. And I don't like the fact that they're tethered to each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because for me, it, it's it, I hate when I have a position like that that can be misconstrued. Right, because it's like it is in no way not wanting me not wanting to see Shuri take up the mantle at some point, or like seeing Shuri in a leading role or anything like that. It's just that like T'Challa and Shuri are not the same character, and like what T'Challa brings to the MCU, like as uh, as a leading man, is different than what Shuri brings to the table. You know, and like and that's good. They're different characters. They should be different, right? Like that. Th- you said the whole like checking boxes thing, and I, I think like. That does kind of rub me the wrong way of just like, well, we can just put this other black character in and it's the same thing, right? And it's like, well, no, like T'Challa's a way different kind of king. And like, and I feel like, I feel like especially in the MCU, he was like an outlier because he's not like this super like, because sure he is like way more like Iron Man or Doctor Strange or like she's quippy and she's smart and a, and an inventor right. and all those things and it's like that's legit that's cool but like T'Challa was such a different kind of hero than like Tony or you know or Peter or or Thor or whoever right um and I think you really lose something yeah absolutely and I mean I'm not prepared to lose that so uh but thank you for writing in with that one and then there was one other comment from 
Catherine on the Wonder Woman review. Uh, so uh, they said, going into this movie, I was worried about two things that didn't have to do with it at all, but with myself. The first was, will I be biased and judge this harshly because I tend to be much more of a Marvel fan? And the second one was, will I be less amazed if it's really good simply because I don't, I didn't get the theater hype. I found some comfort, though, that I fall pretty much right in line with the general consensus. So I think acknowledging my bias up front sort of helps me keep from playing the compare game with Marvel all the time. I don't hate it, but I'm not really willing to watch it again unless a friend wants to. What made me feel better about my second concern was hearing a good movie is good regardless of whether you see it in theaters or not. I believe that. I was just unimpressed overall. There were so many flaws, too many flaws, and that was a huge bummer. I won't say she's my favorite DC hero, but I did enjoy the last movie, even acknowledging it had some flaws too. But I liked it. I thought it was like, all right, DC might be doing something here with this hero. We might have some winners released now. But the sequel fell flat for me. The logic and plot holes that y'all continue to point out is what's frustrating me too, and I remember questioning so much of it. Um and then I'm gonna I'm gonna cut out from the from the um from the comments because they're spoilers and I'm sure a lot of you haven't yet been able to see the film. But uh yeah, I mean Wonder Woman 2 the the more that people see it I feel like the more negative responses it's been getting, it's nearing rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, um, which is unfortunate. And you know, I'm I'm not I'm just not really sure about the Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman. I'm not sure if that's if that's a thing I'm really like dying to see more of. Yeah, I don't know. Like it, it feels like it might be time to pass the torch, but. I don't know. We'll see what happens. She says she has one to two more stories in her for Wonder Woman. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Guess we're locked in. Uh, I like two-thirds of one of them, so. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my favorite moment in Wonder Woman 1984 was probably the the after-credits sequence. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's not good. It's not where you want to be. No. <laughs> and, you know, Patty Jenkins actually addressed one of the primary concerns that people had, which was the body swap thing. Yeah. And uh, she she basically just retweeted someone who said, oh, well, no one was complaining about this when they had uh, the character from the movie Big. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, I have, and I I have complained about that. If you if you if we were having a dialogue about Big right now, I would be like, yeah, it's kind of weird and problematic, like all '80s movies. Yeah, and you know, like it was a different time. There were things you could get away with that you can't necessarily get away with now. And people back then most likely didn't bat an eye. And when I was growing up, I saw Big tons of times, and I absolutely never thought about that. But no. we live in a different era, and I don't think that. Uh, well, ba- let me explain what the argument was. The argument was that, um, you know, people were fine with it when it was big and that, that the body swap thing is a common trope in movies. So what's the problem now? And Patty Jenkins retweeted that and said, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, the I, I don't know. Like, I think if you need to reach back to a movie that's like 
30 to 40 years old <laughs> to make your point that's not yeah and and for me i'm not even saying you can't do it i think if you're gonna do it and you want to play it off and, and have it be funny that's fine but there was just no there was no care for the fact that this person um had a life that was taken from him for for a couple of days and also in big it's not the it's same. not that right yeah it's, it's not a body swap right it's, it's a, a kid a kid's body turns into an adult it's the right, same yeah. person it's weird that it's essentially a, a child brain having sex with an adult yeah but it's the same person it's not yeah it, like it's still a sex crime I'm not I'm not saying that, but like it's it's definitely different, you know. It's also only that on the I, well, I don't remember the full movie, but the child is the the person who he's engaging with does not know right that. So it's not yeah. even there's there is no crime. It's just you know. No, like it's weird, but it's yeah, not Yeah. Like it like it's it's a very like very very strange scenario but it's not a very clean like analogy because the context is very different like the the thing about it that's problematic is way different you know <laughs> right and i think that if we were talking about let's say uh for example captain america and in the winter soldier they brought um agent carter forward and right. she took over her niece's body yeah and he just had sex with her like that would that would definitely have been a different conversation that would have that would have probably been a catastrophic blow to marvel to do something like that and so i think it's just a little bit funny and hypocritical that you know even patty jenkins to just laugh it off it's like eh, i don't know do what you want to do as a filmmaker but at least have some type of consideration especially in 2020 and and like i don't know like, just take your lumps, you know? Like, I, I always think that's a bad look when creators, like... Like, if somebody's, like, razzing you over something that's, like, stupid, you know? If, if it's just, like, you know, like, a, a hate campaign or whatever, like, take your shots or whatever. But, like, if people are just, like, critiquing your your screenwriting or the fact that you didn't, like, acknowledge certain ramifications of some of the decisions that you made or whatever, like, I feel like just take the criticism, you know? Yeah. yeah. Whether or not you agree with it. That's fine, but yeah. don't get in the mud. <laughs> eh, what are you going to do? That movie had a lot of other problems anyways. Yeah. So uh, let's let's jump into the Pals Pulls. We're going to start with you, Pete. You chose Marauder 17 for this week. I did. Uh, so we reviewed Marauder 16 on the show a couple weeks ago. Um, we were all pretty high on the issue. Um, it was, you know, the first one coming off of uh, Ten of Swords, and, you know, we kind of finally got to pick back up on the, the threads that had been running before the event, and um, kind of what was going on with Shaw and, and Kitty and all that, and, like, we saw actual progression there for the first time in quite some time, and, um, you know, we were all happy about that, but I think we also kind of agreed that it was uh, frustrating that you could kind of feel the effects of the delays the book went through uh, at the beginning of quarantine where like this stuff was clearly supposed to have been wrapped up before the Ten of Swords stuff. And it's kind of like, all right, cool. Remember all this stuff? It's wrapped up now. Let's go, you know? Um, so that that has me both feeling excited and kind of wary about this next issue because um, my hope is that now that that's done, like we can kind of just move forward with, 
with what we're doing in Marauders, and I'm excited about the the prospect of that. But I do worry that there might still be like stuff that feels like holdover shit that we haven't wrapped up yet, you know. So fingers crossed that that concern is is misplaced. But uh, either way, I think I think the next couple issues of Marauders should be should be cool um, to finally get to see like us just kind of get back in the swing of things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm I'm also pretty pretty pumped about Marauders still. Uh, so for me, I chose Future State Dark Detective number one. So this is the book that follows Bruce Wayne in the in the Future State world. People believe that Bruce died when Batman did. And so in the next Batman, we know that Tim Fox has taken over the role of Batman. But Bruce has gone into the shadows and now is, is referring to himself as Dark Detective, which is a little funny, but whatever. Uh, DD! <laughs> <laughs> it's written by uh, Mariko Tamaki and drawn by Dan Mora. I think that that might be one of the best creative teams working in comics in general because those two are both in their own right absolutely tremendous creators. Uh, Mariko Tamaki has done some of my favorite books over the last five or so years. Uh, she did the, I believe she did the Hulk run. That was, uh, it was called Hulk, but it was based on uh, She-Hulk. Okay, I remember and, that. And then she also did uh, X-23, I believe when she was Wolverine, she was writing, um, Mariko was writing X-23. Uh, and then she's also currently writing Wonder Woman, which is pretty good. So she's on The new fire. Wonder Woman? Uh, well, the I don't I don't even know how they're if they're going to continue that or what, but the Wonder Woman story that's been ongoing before, I see. Okay. yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with that. But and then Dan Mora, Dan Mora did um, Klaus, which we did a book club on that we really yeah. loved, and um, check that out. Yeah, so uh, they're both tremendous. Now I'm buying this book in protest. I have to say. Because the backup is by Matthew Rosenberg and Carmine De Gian Domenico. I'm not sure how to say that person's name. Um, That's probably right. Hopefully, and it's you know it's a it's a backstory about um, oh geez uh, Gri- is it Grifter or Red Hood and the Outlaws? One of those two, and I I just don't care. It's no disrespect to the creators themselves. Um, yeah, it's about Grifter. I have no problem with them. I love Matthew Rosenberg, actually. I think he's awesome. And I, I great I, interview with yeah. him, uh, from New York Comic Con, um, two years ago. Yeah, he was, uh, yeah, super, super La- nice. Last year, or yeah, 20, 2019. 2019, yes. <laughs> um, and he's awesome. So, again, no slight against either one. I simply don't care about Grifter. I only want to read the Dark Detective story, and now I'm forced to buy a $6 book in order to do that. And I think it's so funny because DC started off the last decade saying that they were drawing the line at $2.99, which was a slight against Marvel, and now they're pushing the line at $5.99. Come on. (laughs) They didn't push the line. They broke the line. So I'm gonna buy it, but you know I'm not I'm not too happy about it. Um, yeah. Speaking yeah, of future state, I did pick up a couple of more future state books than I said I would. 
I just that's hilarious because a I just remember you be like I'm not buying any of these, and then now for you to tell me this, I am not surprised. <laughs> well, I, I said I said I would buy the next Batman, right? So I was always on the hook for that. Sure, but then I I decided to listen. The Swamp Thing cover is too hot, and Marco said it was good. It, yeah, and then like Swamp Thing, generally speaking, everything I've read. Literally, I've enjoyed except the winter special. So, you know, I I feel like I can't go wrong with that. Um, but then I also picked up Future State Wonder Woman um, because of... New Wonder Woman? Well, yeah, because of the cover. Uh, Yannick Paquette's um, cover for that was really good. Oh, so good. Yeah, yeah, I saw him post that on Instagram and I was like, damn. <laughs> yep. And then, uh, actually, I think that might have been it. Okay, so that was the only. So I, I, pay, I did pick up two, two extra. Um, and if they're really good, I'll stick with them. But this is not going to be, dude. Yeah, this that is shit not adds up though. Yeah, like you're paying for like what five books basically there, right? Uh, yeah, pretty or much. Is it four? Well, f- well, uh, next Batman was uh, what was it eight dollars? So that's two regular price books. In and of itself, and then right. the other two are—I I think they're—they're they're five or six dollars each. Yes, I mean. So yeah, that's, if they're six, that's essentially another book. Yeah, it's yep. fucked up. So uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's nothing to sneeze at, and I'm not happy about it. But you know, the Midtown Comics was packed. They were packed, so people were there for it. They showed up. Hmm. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder what the long term ramifications of that are. Like, do do people like stick with it? You know, like, uh, are the books good enough to warrant the price? That kind of thing. Do people find that they like the backup stories? Like, you know, is is this like a thing they're going to have to back down from, or are they going to be able to like commit to this? And and even if people drop off, the the difference in what you're getting out of the people that stick around makes up for it. You know. Yeah, that's something that we're going to have to wait and see on, but. Uh... I have a hard time believing that people will stick with this. I mean, I know that comics in general are like a, um, a more of a an expensive hobby and I'm like a middle class person's game. So I think comic readers are probably inclined to say that if the quality is there, they'll buy it. Um, but we'll see. Yeah, but you also have it in the context of like with just everything going on right now, you know, like like so many people are struggling financially and like the cost of everything is going up. Like if you read comics and also play video games, they cost $10 more than they used to. Netflix just went up. Like, you know, it's like everything's creeping up at the same time it feels like too. Yeah. Uh yeah, I, I that's true and and honestly for me, you know, I I kind of see it as uh not really reading the room. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I really do. Yeah. Yep. Like, um, you should be trying to kind of, I feel like, I, I don't even want to say this because I don't want comics to do this, but I feel like you'd you'd be, it'd be more beneficial to race to the bottom than to try to, like, continue to position yourself as a premium product, you know? Yeah, yeah, especially when, you know, like, you could make the argument and I, and I certainly had no issue buying the um, the black label books because they're presenting themselves as you know a prestige format right. and things like that. But these are just regular books that are longer, you know. Yeah, and have a hard stock cover. Sometimes you, you, that 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 hard stock costs more. 
It's a dollar more to get that. So get a whole additional skew out there now too. Yeah. Yeah, man. Like I, I don't know. I'm I'm with you. I think not reading the room is like the perfect way to describe it. It's like that. It just feels gross. I don't even know that it is gross, but like like if they'd done this two years ago, we might have been like, okay. You know, yeah. like, yeah, maybe that's a move. But like 2020, 2021, like now's the move. I don't know, dude. Don't feel right. Don't feel right. Um, I also chose, I forgot, we, we I still had another uh, another poll. <laughs> I, I also chose Erratic number two. So this is a book, probably, this is probably the first time any of us has pulled a book from this publisher. This is AWA, uh, Artists, Writers, and Artisans. Oh. Yeah. And um, this book is by Carr Andrews. He is notorious for writing and drawing his own work. And he's real, real, real good at it. Uh, his style is very unique. It's very, uh, very cool, very gritty. He did a book called Renato Jones, The 1%. That was very good. Uh, he did an Iron Fist mini. That was very, 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 very good. That I, I really enjoyed um, back in like the like 2014, 2015. Um, Spider-Man Rain. I don't know if you guys remember that, but he did that. Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Dude, <laughs> that talk about gritty. <laughs> yeah. That shit is dark. <laughs> and Spider-Man Reign, I, I don't know what the public perception is of that book, but I've read it a lot, and I've always enjoyed it. So I, I dig it, too, yeah. yeah. It's one I haven't read in a while, but, um, I yeah, I was always a fan of it. Mm -hmm. And so Erratic is um, taking place within the world of the Resistance, which is their shared universe. That's AWA's shared universe. And the concept is... Um, you're 15 years old. You're suddenly granted incredible powers. Cool, right? There's only one problem. You can only use your powers for 10 minutes at a time. What do you do when you have to save the world, but you only have 10 minutes to do it? This is the problem faced by Oliver Leaf, a teenager who has just moved to a new town and a new school and is having a hard enough time navigating classes and his crush before the interdimensional monsters started showing up. So, yeah. Good, good creator. Interesting concept. I want to pick this up. This is issue two, so I'll have to find issue one, but I'm definitely going to jump on board. The I'm looking at the the design of the character, and it like no no disrespect, but it very much looks like uh, it looks like it kind of reminds me of like an amalgam combination of like Miles Morales and like Batman Beyond. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. It's got like the bat, like the bat ears, but like it has like a kind of like spider on the chest, and like it's like blue and gray and red. I don't know. It's very, it's it's a cool design for sure. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. uh, it it definitely gives me like twenty twenty one amalgam vibes. <laughs> uh, if there was ever an amalgam year, it would have been twenty twenty. So, dude, that would have been insane. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep, definitely. Uh all right, so let's jump into the news and we're going to start with Marvel revealing Spider-Man's new costume. Now, they actually showed this off a couple weeks ago, I think, but we could, we just weren't able to get to it. Um but uh it's back in the public eye and I wanted to talk about it a little bit. Um because it's uh 
not universally praised. Let's say that. Um, sure. We should definitely show it off. Uh, Pete, do you want to do you want to showcase that? Uh, yes. All right. So while Pete pulls it up, uh, this the the costume itself was actually designed by Dustin Weaver. Uh, and it was actually a, co- a collaboration between him, Nick Spencer, and Nick Lowe, who's the editor on Amazing Spider-Man. Um, Dustin Weaver is definitely a tremendous artist. He says that he was kind of like f- asked to rein in some of the features that he put into the costume that were over the top in terms of tech. Um, but he feels like they were able to find a balance. All right, so there it is. Uh, <laughs> that is uh, that is the new costume in all its glory. Um, what do you think about it, Pete? Uh, glory is one word for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, man. It's it's weird. Like my my initial reaction to it um, when the when the story kind of broke a while back was like not um, not like immediate revulsion. You know, like it's not. I, I, I don't like despise it or anything, but I I just like don't I don't think it has the stickiness that it needs to have, you know, because like I think of I don't know, like Spider-Man is I think one of the heroes that like has one of the best costumes to begin with, right? right. Like obviously I'm biased as a Spider-Man fan, but I think it's pretty safe to say that like the mask is like a very iconic look, you know? And it's very easy to iterate on it in ways that feel meaningful. Yeah. Right? Like, because I think another thing I'd probably argue, Spider-Man probably has more iconic looks than most other superheroes. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, the symbiote, like, you, the Iron Spider, like, you know, I could sit here rattling them off. But, like, it, it's pretty easy to make slight adjustments to it and have something that feels fresh and, like, striking. And to me, I look at this and it kind of reminds me of... Uh, a mixture of like the future foundation like the white and black but like mixed with the like parker's industry era like tech suits yeah and it just feels like it doesn't have as clear a voice as either of those designs you know like it takes elements from both but feels lesser than either because like i think of like the stealth suit right with like the the black and green like I don't, I don't even, like, read that era of Spider-Man actively, and I think of that as an iconic look. This, to me, I look at this, and I'm like, it's fine or whatever, but, like, it just doesn't strike me. The palette is so soft. Right. You know? It's, like, gray and this, like, navy blue and orange, and it's not even, like, a hot orange. It's, like, a burnt neon. It's None of it really, like, pops. Yeah, um, I definitely see that. Uh, if you guys want to want to see it, you can go on YouTube and watch and watch along with us, or you can pull up the link that we have in the description. But um, I mean, I so my initial reaction was, oh, okay, because it's not. I just feel like Spider Man has so 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 many costumes, and I really learned. Uh, during the big time era where there were Dan Slott was popping out all these different costumes yeah. <laughs> that, you know, you can do anything with this guy. Like, I never thought I would see Spider-Man wearing green, right? But it worked out. So, that suit's cool. Yeah. This one, um, I wouldn't I, – I agree with you. I don't think it's, it's going to stand the test of time. But I'll tell you this. 
if they put this costume in, let's say, the next Spider-Man video game, uh, I'll use it because I bet you it looks pretty cool in move in motion. I, I could see it being cool in the context of the game because, like, I know you just played Miles Morales and they had the Miles twenty uh, ninety nine suit, um, and like it had like the it's like Daft Punk like neon yeah. shit all in it. Like, I could see the spider being that color would be cool and everything, and that would kind of look a little bit more like the stealth suit. Um, I think the other thing that's throwing me off is I don't like the eyes. The eyes are the probably the weakest element for me. They look too um too for too, not foreign but like inhuman. I yeah, guess. like so uh for those of you who aren't looking if you if you haven't seen it yet, um obviously, you know, like I said, like Spider-Man's mask, right, is like the most iconic part of the look and it's like the shape of the eyes and like that's pretty much consistent in every costume. What's weird about this one is you have that shape, but it's a little more angular. And then you have circles in the middle that are, like, two sets of circles that kind of look like cyborg eyes. And it, like, just makes him look like a robot. Like, if you told me this was a robot that Peter built as, like, a, oh, he's building, like, you know, like, Tony Stark-style, like, Spider-Man drones or something, I'd be like, oh, okay, I buy that. That is, as a costume, it feels off. It feels a little inhuman. Not... Of the Inhumans. Non-human is what I mean to say. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I'm I with you. Um, I'm, so this will actually be debuting in Amazing Spider-Man 63, which will drop in March. So we don't have a ton of time to wait to see it, you know, um, moving. Not moving, but like, you know, in across different panels and action. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but for now, it's eh, you know it's 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 not the best. It's it's kind of weak. It's not you know I'm not over the moon about it. I'm not thrilled. Um, but Spider Man's a malleable character, and I think every creator who comes on to write Spider Man and every artist who gets to draw wants to take on a Leave new their suit design. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, Dan Slott's run there were like like four, five, or maybe even more than that different suits. Yeah. So, and some of them I do enjoy. So, of those, which do you feel like is the most memorable? Because for me, for me, it's like I said, it's definitely that stealth suit. That black with the neon green is like such a weird iteration, but it just works. Yeah. So I really love the. Uh, what's the era? It's the era right after Secret Wars, where. Um, so I forgot I forgot what it's called, but it's the suit where it's kind of like armory. It's like the same color scheme and everything, but it's armor, not you know spandex or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- I think it's just called the spider armor. Yeah, it might be. Um, it's it's in it is in the video game. It is in yeah. the the Spider Man video game. Um, I think they have two sets of it, right? Because I feel like they have that and they have like the Mark II one. Because there's, like, they had, like, the spider armor that was, like, the old one right. from, like, the, the 90s and shit. Yeah. And then I think they also have the one you're talking about. It was the all-new, all-different all era, I, I believe. I want to say it was the all-new, all-different era. Um, yes, it was. Yeah, I really like that costume. I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. Um, so, yeah, I, that, that's the one I would, I would say. Cool. Yeah. Uh actually though, I, I see that the the costume was created by Alex Ross. 
The one you're talking about? Yeah. Neat. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and I, I'm looking now at the original artwork that he did for it, and it's, <laughs> whew, man, it is, it's nice. It's very nice. So, yeah, that would be my answer. And for you, it's a stealth suit? From that era, yeah, yeah. I would say. Okay. Like, slots run. I think I think that's, like, that has, like, earned its place, I think, of if there's any suit from his run that's, like, the most memorable. It's got to be the stealth suit for me. So then what's your favorite non-traditional Spider-Man costume? I, I think, I think, like, in terms of what I think, like, actually looks the best, I think it's the symbiote suit. Like or or just the the mono black. Um, I love the way that that can be used, you know, and I like the way that artists would would like take advantage of that, like to cast him in shadows and like kind of like make him a little bit creepier and stuff like that, which is like not necessarily something you associate with Spider Man, but it's not a thing he never employs, you know. Um, so I I feel like that is it's an easy answer but i think it's an easy answer because it's such a classic look my favorite like goofy one is absolutely the amazing bagman i think that is so fucking funny like <laughs> i love it when that costume makes it into a game it's so good it's so fucking dumb yeah i remember like unlocking that in the the uh, neversoft spider-man game on ps1 and like going and like looking it up on like old school AOL internet because I was like I have to figure out what this is from like what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I was I was freaked out by it. I didn't understand it. <laughs> he had like the, like the eyes were like very like big and like kind of beady. It was like super weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so for me, it would it would have to be. Um, it would ha- it would definitely have to be Spider Man twenty ninety nine. I yeah, love that costume. I had that toy as a kid. That was my favorite toy. Was the Spider Man two thousand ninety nine uh, costume toy. Um, I just think it looks beautiful. I think it's really really cool. It's it's you know it's different. It's very different. But for me, that was probably like one when I when I first saw it. That was probably like the th- the third or fourth different Spider-Man costume that I had seen, and I fell in love, and I've always loved it since. So, it's such a cool like the color scheme of it is so cool too. Yeah, which is I think I think a thing that kind of gets underserved when people talk about how cool a look it is, because like it's it's like a very angular design and that's neat. But I I think like this the soft like purples and stuff like it's a more muted tone and but it still looks striking. Sure, and that's hard to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so speaking of what's new, Marvel has announced a new X Men series. We talked about or we referenced, I believe, last week that Cy Spurrier would be doing. An X book, and now we know what it is. It's called Way of X, and it's going to star none other than Nightcrawler. Let's fucking go. Yes. I am so excited about this. Yes. So hot off the heels of Cy Spurrier's success with Hellblazer, which a lot of people really enjoyed, and and then he also did um, X-Men Legacy, which was really good. Uh, He's going to be doing this book, which is going to... Get into some of the, the, the religion stuff that Nightcrawler had wanted to do. Um, yes. So I'm excited to see that. I know Pete's been Pete's been banging the drum of Nightcrawler's religion for some time now. 
finally get into that. They just dropped that thread for me. I was like, come on, let's go. <laughs> yeah, and that is one of the cool things about what Hickman has built with this uh, world of X because there are so many things that can be pulled at any time. And he kind of drops it and says, okay, somebody else picked that baton up. And now here, here's Size Spurrier. Um, but that's not all the book will be about, actually. Um, so Spurrier said, I should probably just tell a lie for the sake of a neat elevator pitch and say that Way of X is a story about the creation of a new mutant religion. But it's not. Not really. That's kind of where it starts, for sure. Nightcrawler realizes something's wrong with the hearts and minds of mutant kind and sets out to fix it. But as he quickly discovers, this isn't a job for priests and prayers. The question is, what do they have to become in order to fight it? Preachers? Cops? Executioners? Or something entirely new? So That's, that's cool to me. Yeah, that's what he had to say about it. Um, Marvel did put out a description, so I'm going to read that because it, it, it clues us into who's on the team. So it says, Mutant Kind has built a new Eden, but there are serpents in this garden. Some mutants struggle to fit in. Some mutants turn to violence and death. And the children whisper of the patchwork man, singing in their hearts. Only one mutant senses the looming shadows. Snared by questions of death, law, and love, only Nightcrawler can fight for the soul of Krakoa. Only he and the curious crew he assembles, including fan favorites Dr. Nemesis, Pixie, and Blink, can help mutants defeat their inner darkness and find a new way to live. I'm I'm in, you know, like the <clears throat> I think what has been so cool about this era of the X-Men is that it's way less about superheroics and it's way more about sociology. And obviously, um, any any state, any culture, right, like religion or morality, like whatever your moral center is, is, is a huge part of 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 a culture of a people right of like what are the what are your values what do you hold dear who are the heroes that you aspire to like what are the moral stories that you that you trade in um and for the mutants right like some of those questions are answered right like the state's been established the x-men are the heroes on the hill that they'll aspire to and like you know now now what's what's here right like who are the great mutant philosophers and thinkers and artists and like they they as a as a species like as a race have never really had the opportunity to generate many of those types of thinkers because they've always been a people in distress you know so like having nightcrawler lead that charge totally makes sense he's the, like you know the moral core of the x-men in so many ways and like is you know the x-men character you'd most associate with religion and spirituality and and you know um, asking those kinds of questions in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So giving him this opportunity, I think, is cool. And Cy uh, Spurrier is a, a voice that, you know, a lot of people are into right now. So getting him on an X book is a win for it's a win for everybody. I, I, I'm, I'm actually really excited for this. This is going to be cool. Especially um, um, just some of the stuff that that like uh that they're saying like about how excited they are and how much they like right night they like nightcrawler and and everything um yeah it's going to be cool yeah we're getting this in april so you know a little a little bit of a wait but uh, i think it'll be worth it i think it'll be worth it yeah i'm very much looking forward to this book yeah uh and and by the way the artist is bob quinn 
who I'm not familiar with. I can't think of any Bob Quinn work that I've seen. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm excited. Uh, he has apparently worked on Fantastic Four. Okay. Okay. I'm liking what I'm seeing, I'll tell you that. Looks pretty good. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Cool. So, uh, a, a good creative team with a, with, a, with a solid concept. You can't go wrong. Unfortunately, as we say hello to Cy Spurrier on the Marvel end, we're saying goodbye to Yannick Paquette on the DC end as he is leaving DC after 10 years of an exclusive run with them. Absolutely wild. Yeah. Yeah. So I have mentioned and we have had several conversations now about DC, you know, paying less. And how that would drive away some creators. Now, I'm not saying that Yannick is leaving because of that. I don't know. I have no idea why he's leaving. Ten years is a long time. It's very possible that he just wants to draw different things. That's totally reasonable. But I just want you to have that in your mind as we have this conversation. So, uh, in Death Metal 7, Yannick had um, a page or two. Uh, in Generation Shattered, he had some some art there, and then of course, Wonder Woman Earth One Volume Three is on the horizon for March 9th. But regarding his departure, he had this to say: Death Metal Seven is out there. As it turned out, this is a fitting celebratory end to my ten years tenure at DC. I'll venture to some unannounced stuff for a while, but no doubt I'll get back to DC at some point. Uh, so we don't know what he's going to be doing we don't know why he's leaving but uh he is a top tier artist for sure and i'm excited to see what he chooses to do yeah i uh totally agree with you i think um you know whatever the reason uh yannick leaving i think is is actually more exciting than it is disappointing um 10 years is a long time and you know like he's done some amazing work like I, I I've said on the show before I think he's one of the best artists working today um the guy does amazing stuff and like the idea of him like you know um going and doing some creator owned work for example is something that I'm like very interested in um especially you know um if he teams up with you know with with somebody who who we like um you know, he's he's such a powerhouse creator and like he's very dynamic, you know, like he can do a lot of different stuff really well. So it's like you could see him going a lot of different directions, right? Um and and I think even if he like is going over to do something big at Marvel, like that's potentially exciting. Like, you know, how how cool would it be if he popped up on one of the these X books, right? Or like, you know, was I don't know, like get some obscure character that is gonna he can have like real creative freedom with or something like that whatever it is like you know i'm sure um i'm sure he's eager for for new challenges and to like do something different you know so whatever that whatever shape that takes is exciting could you imagine him doing one of those giant sized one shots with hickman oh i can now that would be fucking (laughs) awesome (laughs) yeah Put Russell Donnerman on a monthly book and then Yannick Paquette take over John Size. I like how somehow Russell Donnerman always just comes up. <laughs> Yo, I gotta you gotta you gotta you gotta put your people over, you know? <laughs> for sure, for sure. 
Yeah, I I mean, I'm excited by the possibilities. You're absolutely right. This is not a reason to be sad unless you are a DC stan, in which case you are losing one of your best. We always talk about how DC is the home of the better artists and now they've lost one of the one of the artists who makes that who has made that true historically. So, we'll see what he ends up doing with his career, but 10 years is quite a long time and um you'll hear it here for sure, whenever his next project is is announced, I'm. I'm There's hoping he drops an image next. I would love to love to see him do something original. Yeah, and again, it's he said that there are unannounced projects that he has in the works. So whatever it is that he's doing, we'll probably hear about it pretty soon. So uh, Ray Fisher, we have to talk about the Ray Fisher Warner Media saga because uh, that has not ended. We talked about it a few weeks ago, and uh, you know we we broke down the entire you know drama between these two factions. Ray Fisher, of course, the man who plays Cyborg in the Justice League movie and the upcoming Snyder Cut, he has had a problem with Warner Media ever since they filmed those movies, and he has been outspoken over the last year or so regarding his experience and how negative it was. And recently, there was an investigation into his allegations that there was racism on set, that Joss Whedon was a a bully, um, that Jeff Johns was a bully, and that these people made his experience and the experience of others on set, particularly the minorities on set, very uncomfortable and stressful. Now, The investigation did conclude, uh, and they're not admitting to this, but shortly after the conclusion of the investigation, Joss Whedon announced that he was pulling out of The Nevers, which was a a television show he was going to be developing alongside HBO um, that he originally, there was an original creation on his part, and now that is no longer happening. So, Ray Fisher said that he would be that he was unwilling to work on any projects with Walter Hamada who is the president of DC Films that is overseeing the Flash movie and then um <laughs> and then there was a rumor that Ray Fisher was being written out of the Flash this dropped just 2 days ago this 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 uh announcement or whatever this rumor and warner media said that uh he chose to break away from the movie that he publicly uh stepped down um ray fisher said i did not publicly step down from anything if wb pictures has made the decision to remove me from the flash rather than address in any way walter hamana tampering with the justice league investigation that's on them the idea of removing the role rather than recasting it is only being used to try to avoid public backlash so this is getting really muddy it's getting really uh really kind of you know nasty between these two um Ray Fisher made the allegation that Jeff Johns was being removed from his yeah. role, which uh, several sources, according to 
um, the rap and um, Variety are saying that that's not true. But that's what he alleges. This whole thing is just a mess. Yeah, and that that was the wrinkle I found to be the most interesting. Um, is is the Jeff Johns of it all? Because I feel like his name in association with this story has like it's been sporadic. You know, like it seems like when Ray Fisher talks about it, like I, I it seems as though Joss Whedon has been like the primary target but it's also been like also joss whedon contributed or also joss whedon or i'm not joss whedon i'm sorry also jeff johns contributed or also jeff johns enabled uh this environment right or or what have you um and yeah and uh i i guess i i'm i'm kind of left wondering where the truth in that matter is and that and i'm not saying that i doubt what ray fisher's saying or anything like that but the fact that like what he said about joss whedon has been you know, corroborated by other sources and supported by a history of behavior that it's like, okay, like this seems like the latest development in a long line of developments. Right. Whereas the Jeff Johns of it all, like I, I don't feel totally clear on what Ray Fisher uh, has said he's done, I guess, aside from not step in and like stop what was happening, you know? And I'm not saying that that's not bad. I guess I'm just saying that like, uh, you said it feels muddy, and I feel like I'm getting I'm losing the thread a little bit as someone following the story, and the fact that there is like this now dispute between you know what Ray Fisher is tweeting and what um, other people who claim to be in the know are saying is uh, is a very strange wrinkle to a cascadingly like strange story lately. You know? Yeah, it's. It's it's messed up. I don't know exactly what he accuses uh, Jeff Johns of doing. I I feel like I recall, and, and obviously I'm speaking based on what I think is a memory, um, uh, that Jeff Johns was when that when Ray went to him to talk to him about what he was experiencing. That Jeff Johns, um, kind of like brushed him off type of thing if i recall correctly tried to like sweep it under the rug kind of thing right yeah yeah uh but i could i could be wrong i don't recall exactly that's that's my memory of it too okay what is that more more that he was complicit in in a hostile environment rather than that he was actively being hostile right um which is not much better uh but um but but it's interesting i guess to to try to see like where that's going to come out in the wash. Sure. And just to just to reiterate, uh, these are the comments that Ray Fisher actually made um, much, much earlier on in an interview with Forbes that he did, where he said, I always suspected that race was a determining factor for the way that things went down, but it wasn't until this past summer that I was able to prove it. Race was just one of the issues with the reshoot process. There were massive blowups, Threats, coercion, taunting, unsafe work conditions, belittling, and gaslighting like you wouldn't believe. What set my soul on fire and forced me to speak out about Joss Whedon this summer was my becoming informed that Joss had ordered that the complexion of an actor of color be changed in post-production because he didn't like the color of their skin tone. Man, with everything 2020's been, that was the tipping point for me. 
That's a huge and heavy allegation. Now, Ray is talking about something that he was told happened years ago. Justice League came out in what, 2017, 2018, yeah. that range. Yeah, somewhere in there. And they would have been shooting it uh, much, uh, you know, within, uh, you know, a year, within a, a year before, roughly. So you're talking about events that took place at the point at which Ray was talking about it about four years prior. So, I mean, you know, is this accurate? This what he what was relayed to him? Is it misconstrued? There's a lot. There's a lot there. It's not my place to really speculate on that. All I can say is that for Warner Brothers, this is a terribly bad look. And in light of everything that's been going on with the HBO Max putting movies on there for the rest of 2021 and pissing off tons of actors, directors, and producers, they're becoming the enemy in in Hollywood in a lot of ways. And I know that, you know, this is not a podcast that really breaks down Hollywood stuff, but this is we're talking comic book movies, and WB is is looking bad in this. And I and I I think it 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 also leads to that broader kind of or not leads to but I guess contributes to that broader perception that we have that like they're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic over at DC right where it's that from top to like you look at Marvel right now right and Marvel has you know high quality uh, like children's animation. They have the MCU, which is the driving force in Hollywood for blockbusters in a year. Um, you know, at least two out of the four movies they put out usually. Uh, they're they're starting to really get their shit together with video games. Like they they have this great multimedia offering. Like wherever you want to get a Marvel property, now they've got these TV shows coming out. Like you know, they're they're really running the game. Right, and like and DC is like struggling to catch up everywhere you know and it's uh it's it's not a good look it's not a good look for warner where you have you know clearly superheroes are are a money-making endeavor right um it's not hard to make money on superheroes uh especially right now the last like decade and they have just not figured it out yeah and they continue to fail to figure it out um and even even like it feels like even the stuff that like they do get, it's like two steps forward, one step back, right? Because like even Wonder Woman, which you were like, oh right, like uh, Catherine said in her comments earlier, right? Like it's like oh, I feel like they were onto something, and then like two came out, and it's not. So it it just it just paints this picture of mass disorganization and a lot and a just a clear excuse the Wilson Fisk but like a clear lack of vision like it's just there there's no one there to steer the ship that knows how to make the money you know yeah yeah and and this is a history of dysfunction uh, i think back to um a couple of years ago i i don't remember the exact story but one of the executives over at dc was caught in an affair and it, it was it was with a, an actor who, you know, felt that she was being taken advantage of, and so she exposed it, and he 
resigned. Um, there's the HBO Max versus the films department that's been going on. That's an ongoing struggle. The allegation that WB actually paid uh, Gal Gadot and Patty Jenkins millions of dollars under the table to publicly um, praise the move to put Wonder Woman out on HBO Max, um, which is why they have universally praised it and haven't said a bad thing about it. Uh, there's a lot going on over there, and um, these things don't bode well. They don't bode well. Um, but hopefully Ray Fisher can find peace, even if he isn't going to be in the Flash, even if he's never going to play Cyborg again. This sounds like the kind of thing that could be truly traumatic, and especially being in the public light for something like this is not what you want. Uh, when you're an actor and you're trying to find your footing, you don't want to be embroiled in this kind of conflict with a major studio. Yeah, let alone when I think I, – I should say especially when you're an actor um, at Ray Fisher's level. Right. And I, I mean that with no disrespect, no, right? Yeah. Like Ray Fisher's not a, a movie star. Um, you know, he's not a, like a Jason Momoa, right, or whatever, one of his other co-stars. Um, this This was – the role that had the opportunity to put him over and put him in the public eye. And it's only, you know, um, caused strife for him, right? Both personally and professionally, seemingly. Because you have to imagine that, like, whatever the truth is here, like, he probably has a stink on him now. Where, like, big studios are like, oh, do we want to work with this guy? Is he difficult if we have a director who's a piece of shit that we work with? Or is he going to, you know, make a, a public stink about it? And, like, again... He's in the right to have done that. But if you're a fucking shitty suit who makes movies and works with shady directors or whatever, like, you're like, oh, fuck that guy, right? Like, we'll hire the next guy. We'll get somebody more famous. Like, that, that's like, this whole controversy could be a thing that fucks up his career for, for forever, you know? Frankly. And you know what's weird? All the Justice League actors have either been critical of... Jace, uh, Joss Whedon supported Ray Fisher or said nothing. Yeah. But no one, to my knowledge, to my immediate recollection, has said anything bad about Zack Snyder. Yeah, that's true. And you might think that Zack would be the one that people would have an issue with because, you know... A lot of people don't like his movies. People say he's a piece of shit. But behind the scenes, apparently he's a good guy. I mean, I, I don't get the impression that he's difficult to work with. Right. You know, like that that from what I've seen. Right. I've never heard anyone talk about him that way. I'm just not a fan of what he makes. Right. You know, um, but. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, you I think I think if there were allegations of this caliber, you'd have heard them. Without question, it would be so easy to put that out and get support because, especially now, yeah, with like the Snyder cut and all that shit, right? Like, yeah. by all accounts, seems like he's you know some easy enough to work with. Yeah. Well, let's let's get into our reviews. We've got two up for you guys. We're going to be reviewing Eternals number one, and we're also going to be looking at Dark Knight's Death Metal number seven and reviewing it, but also examining what it means. 
for the future of DC in light of <sighs> the Infinite Frontier. I am really excited to dig in on that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to start with Eternals, and this is by Kieran Gillen, Asad Rabik, and Matthew Wilson on um, the words, art, and letters, respectively. Um, this is a huge book for the simple fact that the Eternals really haven't been in the spotlight, and clearly this is Marvel's attempt to, you know, give them some shine in the books before the movie releases. Uh, the movie should have been out by now, uh, and this book should have come out a while ago, but they had to shift things around due to, you know, obviously the movie, uh, not being able to release, and they decided to just put the book out. Get it started, and hopefully, you know, we'll be able to see the movie soon enough. It's a it's a much longer book than a standard comic. Um, for only a dollar more, take you know, take a lesson from that DC. Um, <laughs> How many pages was it? I'm not sure what the page count actually was ultimately, but it was it was pretty long. It was dense, too. Yes, it was long. It was dense. Uh, 31 pages. 31 pages. So that's that's a nice, chunky issue. Um, and it reintroduces us or introduces us for the first time, for those of us who are unfamiliar, to the world of the Eternals, to the idea of the Eternals, to the cast, to the Deviants, and um, sort of what this world is about. So, Pete, first of all, is it safe to assume you don't have familiarity with the Eternals? Because I don't. None. Okay. I, I I actually don't even know if I've ever read anything that they were in. I'm sure I haven't. And so based on that, did this do a good job? The most important job it had. Did it do a good job of introducing you to their world? I think it did a good enough job. Um, and, and I say that, uh, not, not with like derision, just, I think what I, what I took away from this issue is that there is a fucking lot to explain and they could only explain so much without it being, um, just not interesting. Right. Right. And and like, and, and ultimately getting in the way of, um, of what, what a, the first issue should do, which is draw me in. Um, and I think it did do a good job of that because not knowing anything about these characters, like not really knowing anything about, you know, um, like when it gives you the pitch of like, oh, here's what they are and like why they were, I was like, oh yeah, okay. I think I kind of knew that. Like, I think I've read that before. I knew that they were connected to the, the celestials and, and, um, and Thanos and that kind of stuff. But like. If you had asked me like draw a straight line of what they are, I would not have been able to tell you. Right. So now that it's like clear in my mind and I can like explain it in a sentence if somebody asks me who are the Eternals and I can say like, oh, here's who they are and what they're about. That's good. Um, and it also gave me characters to like hang on to of like, okay, like these are the main characters. Here's their relationship and why it has stakes and what their mission is now moving forward and cool. Like it set everything up and it contextualized me in the actual story. And I know that there's more I don't know and there's more I need to learn, but I'm confident that they'll give it to me over time in a similar way to the point where it'll be digestible and I'll be able to keep up with it. Um, so I, I actually wanted to really, really 
give it praise specifically for that. Because um, I think the pacing of the story and the way that it balances uh, presenting information with actual plot is is strong for for an issue number one. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think that this issue did a very very good job of setting the stage, setting the table, and establishing what the Eternals are. I think the closest book that I can think of to this is actually. Um, House and Powers. It's it, it's very similar in the sense that, and 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 you know, who, no one is unfamiliar with the X Men, right? But right, <laughs> we were unfamiliar with this new world, this new uh, mission statement for the X Men, and Jonathan Hickman was tasked with presenting that to us, and he did an excellent job. I actually think that this book gives us more than the first issue of. House did in terms of letting us know what's going on. It wasn't, it was a few issues deep where we learned that the X Men could, you know, they were essentially eternal. Um, I think it needed to, too, right? Sure. Because yeah. of that lack of familiarity. Like, because to your point, I don't really need to know who the X Men are to be, or I'm sorry, I don't need to know what's going on to be interested in what's going on. Whereas I think this needed to catch us. Right. Yeah. So, in that regard, I, I think this book did a brilliant job. It also did something else. It borrowed from uh, from the House and Powers. The, the infographic, infographic pages. Yes. They, yeah. they, they clearly recognized how successful those were over there at being able to allow people to catch up without needing to bake too much information into the story and thus making it unpenetrable. You can look at these, get what you need to get out of them, and you know move on. And that's that's very effective. I, I I loved seeing this because it gave me the impression I'm like, oh wow, is this like a thing now? Like, is this like a is this going to be a device that people learned from from Hoxpox? Because I kind of hope it is. I feel like um, that very like it's like a very old school comic trope that like I feel like we've gotten away from over time, but like we ding books for it now when they do it, where like you'll have two characters having a conversation to give all the information that they gave us on a page. And it's like clunky and annoying and like, doesn't actually sound like how people talk. And it clearly exists to give you exposition. And it's like, just give me a page. Like, that's fine. I'm fine looking at a map and being like, Hey, so these are where they are and this is where they go. And this is how they travel. And all right, cool. Good. Great. Thank you. I needed that. Or if you don't care, you skip it and you don't feel like you, missed out on on dialogue you know yeah and it didn't interrupt the flow of the story or the right. or the like the beats of it you know and, and if you already know like if you're an eternals fan you can be like fuck it i know this right <laughs> exactly and you know some of this like i'm not going to retain this there's just no chance right like if you go to the the first infographic and you look at all the different names of the different characters, <laughs> there's and like all the different like like uh, like groups of them and everything, right. you know, I'm, it's I'm like not, I'm no not fucking gonna way. remember that. But I don't need to because I'm sure the book will refer to these characters by their names. And if I need to, uh, if I want to know, I can always refer back to this page. It's very clean. Um, uh, Clayton Cowles actually did the letters and the the um the designs of the book and he did a tremendous job he's worked on almost all of the the uh the the house and power stuff and the you know and all that so i'm sure he learned a lot you um, can see it yeah so 
all that stuff is presented well. It's clean. It's nice. And uh, I didn't. I didn't ever mind them being there. No, no. I. To me, this was like an example of how they should be used again. Of like, yeah, I needed this, and I greatly benefited from it. And if every issue of the Eternals opens with that page, like near the front, that'd be great. Right. You know. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, who the um, fuck am I looking at again? Okay, great. One of the fifty <laughs> characters, like. <laughs> Yeah, I referred back to it in this in this issue uh, a couple times just to re, you know kind of refresh uh, when 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 Zurus comes on to the to the page. I was like, I went back and I was like, oh, was he? What team is he on? Or where is he at? And you know, <laughs> yeah, it's like, are you guys on the same side or no? <laughs> right, right. Um, so as far as the story is concerned, it's definitely very pedestrian. It's mostly just Icarus kind of waking up um, and re orienting himself with the world and uh, being given a mission uh, to unlock one of the excluded, I believe, Eternals. Yeah, uh, Sprite. Sprite, right. And they just kind of go on a little journey together, and they have to go take out a a Deviant that they found. Um, The Deviant concept, I'm not all the way clear on. They tried to explain it a couple of times, and I got what they wrote, but I need to see it more in practice. It seems to be the idea that there are creatures created that sometimes become monstrous, and they need to be dealt with. That's what I got out of it. So... Uh, reading it, it says the third principle is correct excess deviation. The deviants are the changing people. They are each a species of one, but statistically speaking, the average deviant they're like small and they're cute or whatever, but then sometimes they're not. So uh, what I, what I was taking away from it is that like, they are, um, like, like that they're like there's some kind of weird species where they have like maybe like a hive mind or something and that like the ones that deviate and go and become monsters are like what the Eternals are dealing with um I don't know that that's just kind of what I got from that one little blurb you know uh but I, I did think it was kind of funny that, like, they contextualize it with gremlins, especially when I remember that the narrator is their computer and that, like, they kept going on about the fact that the computer is being, like, weirdly, like, talkative and, and wordy. And I, I was like, oh, it's kind of, like, funny how that feels like world building, but it's narrative, but it's just exposition. And I like that a lot. Yeah, I thought that it was cute that the that the computer was a bit cheeky and had you know, uh, spoke in a way that was very easy for us to understand and use references that we could understand and that that was a part of the story as well. Have you seen Gremlins? Yes, the planet Earth has seen Gremlins. The Earth has seen everything. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that was hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, you know, again, there weren't a ton of characters introduced for us to fall in love with or anything like that. I wouldn't say that... Um, any of the characters that we did see here became an anchor for me. Like, I don't necessarily know who Icarus is. I didn't care a ton for Sprite, but this isn't, that's, it's not about that necessarily. The Eternals are a lot more than just the, the four or five characters that we saw here. And I'm excited to see 
who these characters are that I don't know. This is a tapish, this is a piece of Marvel that I've never tapped into before. So it feels really fresh for me in 2021 to be learning about something that has actually existed for like 40 something years that I don't know about. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm at. And um I don't know, like I, I agree with you, but like for whatever reason I feel hooked. Yeah, no, like, I, I want I wanna follow it. I am Yeah, hooked. yeah, yeah. Um, just, just the thing you said about like that there's not that much to grab onto, but for some reason I did. Yeah, because the because Gillen did such a tremendous job of making this feel not just big, right? It feels big. It feels like a moment. It feels like something you should be present for, but also it feels it, it feels good to be reading it, even though I don't know what's going on. I'm, 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 the journey is what I'm excited about because of the way that he puts this together. And, you know, there's the cute little, you know, Iron Man, uh, cameo that brings it down into our world that, you know, establishes that we're here now, that these characters know each other. Um, you know, all of those things were just such smart choices. And then, you know, to end it with Thanos. And, and his and his presence, you know, I knew that he was um, a part of the Eternals lore in some way. And so for them to immediately go to him, I think was really smart because people love Thanos and he is a character who people show up for. So to tie him into the Eternals who, who are new to a lot of us and could use the boost, I think that was super smart. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think it... Um... Both both of those things help to just like ground you a little bit, and 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 again, like you said, like Thanos is a, is a character that we do know pretty well, you know, and and like even if you're casual, right, like you you have an idea of who Thanos is and the and the Infinity Gauntlet and all that shit. Um, so it's like him being there at the end of the first issue as like the cliffhanger. You're like, oh wow, like that feels like a moment. That feels like a thing you could have gotten away with doing way later, right? Exactly, and it still would have been hype. Exactly. Um, so I think that coupled with the fact that they do do a good job of giving us enough of these new characters, at least the two main characters, right? Icarus and Sprite. We're like, I get a sense of who they are. Like I get their dynamic. Um, and I get that it's, it's like, it feels like it's like, okay, this is going to be like an odd couple buddy cop kind of thing. You know? At least for um, now, as we yeah. await the introduction of more characters. Yeah. Sure. Um, but that that is enough to give me something, right? And then if we meet more characters that I like, and then these two stick together as a duo, you're like, oh yeah, like they've got a dynamic that I understand already. Like, and you can keep building on it, and it feels like you know, like this issue built on itself so well. I'd be surprised if it doesn't continue to do that, like as a series, you know? Yeah. The other thing I really enjoyed, and this is not necessarily creative, but uh, I really enjoyed the. The fact that Marvel included the ads for different runs of the Eternals, the classic stuff, like the game in, oh, and then yeah. the, um, the Kirby stuff. Like, I love that they're, that they were like, hey, if you enjoy what you're seeing now, here's the stuff that's come before. It's that, like, you probably have not read this. Right. That was so, <laughs> so smart on their part to do. And again, not creative, but uh, a good move. Um. The art is so amazing. 
I love the colors. The colors are amazing. Matthew Wilson is is a, is a is a really great color artist. Isad Rabik is this is this is why he's one of the the greatest ever. It's just so beautiful. His figures they 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 feel like they could come out of the book. Yeah, there's like a um there's a, there's a texture to it. Yes. You know, it it feels like something that you could reach out and touch. Yep. You know? Like I feel like I can see like you know, like there the, the the scene you mentioned with Iron Man, right? Like uh there's kind of like the way that the the day is drawn and th- this is like the mixture of the the line work and the colors, right? Like it has that like haze that like New York City gets on like in like, yeah. a, like a fucking heat wave summer day, yeah. you know? And it's like, oh, I can like feel like Icarus looks kind of sweaty, right? You know? And like you know, I, and it just it feels so tangible. Yes, absolutely, and and that's something that he does so well. I'm pretty sure he traditionally works with uh, Matthew Wilson. I believe Matthew Wilson uh, colored him in. In Secret Wars, because the book looked very similar to this, and whether that's the case or not, they work really well together. They're a this, pair, yeah, man. This is tremendous. Uh, Thanos looked really great there at the end. I loved his height, his size, how he towered over Icarus. That was cool. Um, it, it's just a just a gorgeous book. It, it, nothing flashy, but really, really, really tremendous looking art and. I would buy the book if there were no words because of that. There's a pretty good uh, diversity of backgrounds too. Right. Like between the city and like then like the different like eternal realms or whatever they're fucking called that they go to. Like they all feel different and you never get to that kind of like lazy background art where it's just kind of like something nothing or blank or scribbly lines or whatever. It's all well detailed. Yeah, and like I feel present in the moment because of that, even if we're only there for like a second, you right. know? Like you go to that the what uh what is it called? The Titanos where they go to meet Thanos and it's like it, that has a vibe immediately. Yes. And it carries through. Yeah. This was one of the better issue ones that I've read in a long time. I think that this creative team did a a great job. I hope they stick together. I don't know Assad to do like longer runs too often so i i hope they stick together because if they do i believe in in this i believe in this idea i believe in the strategy and i i would love to see this be one of marvel's premier books going forward for at least the next year i mean i had no expectations for this book and i i really enjoyed it to the point of where i i'm gonna try to follow it month to month so like that's high praise yeah absolutely i can't wait i'm uh we 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 sung its praises. It's great. Go buy it if you have. Yeah, it. pick it up. Yeah, it's cool. Yep. Uh, let's talk about the main event: Dark Knight's Death Metal number seven. <laughs> what a fucking issue! <laughs> yeah. So of course this is by Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo, Jonathan Glapion, and uh, CFO Placencia. Did you? Before we get into it, did you see that Scott Snyder liked Marco's edit of the cover? I did, and it's FCO Placencia. But yes, I did see that. <laughs> Check out our Twitter. You can see the the meme that was so good that Scott Snyder himself had to like it. The man himself. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Uh, so this is the big ending of death metal. Of everything. Of, of, of everything. <laughs> an end, but not an end. A beginning, but not a beginning. Uh, Did you write the dialogue in this issue, Sean? <laughs> I had a hand in it. I was a ghostwriter. Um, I think that this event, largely to this point, has been uneven. And I think that Scott Snyder had a big task to wrap everything up and then also, you know establish whatever's coming in the future for DC, the infinite frontier. And I enjoyed parts of this, but I really, really don't enjoy the parts of DC events that are just here. Are the gears turning towards the next big status quo. Yeah, dude, there's a point at the end where Lex Luthor literally says Infinite Frontier. <laughs> they named the other planet the Elseworld. Come on, man. It's it's too it's too much and um it 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 gave me the exact same vibe that I felt uh at the end of of Doomsday Clock where, you know, um I I had enjoyed like you know, 90, 95% of Doomsday Clock. And it really wasn't until the end where I felt like it um, it fell apart and that uh, it really started to kind of like, you said like the, you can see the gears turning. You can you can see behind the, the curtain, right? And this, uh, this arc, this event gave me the same feeling at the end where it's like the fact that you have so many pages dedicated to just like, contextualizing editorial decisions in universe makes the thing feel immediately dated and something that is not going to stand the test of time, right? Where like, I remember reading Doomsday Clock and having that feeling of like, this could really be a book that is like an all time great and is something that you go back to years from now and, and, and it keeps finding new meaning, all that stuff. And, and it, it won't be. And and I don't think this can be either. And maybe not not that this was ever going to be deep, right? But like, once you contextualize something as just like a, oh yeah, this was how they blew it up for the eighth time. Cool. It it take it takes so much wind out of its sails, you know. Well, think about how Doomsday Clock ended with Doctor Manhattan seeing into the future and seeing five G. That's something that didn't that didn't even ever happen. So now that book ends weird because it's telling you he's seeing the future. It's telling you this is going to happen. That never happens. Completely bad. But um, let, let, let's let's take it from the top with this one and um, be fair to what Snyder wanted to do versus what he had to do. Yeah. So yeah. what he wanted to do was tell a story about the heroes of DC fighting to their last to save the world that they love. And I thought a lot of this was strong. I did. I agree. Uh, there were a lot of good moments uh, between characters. You know, getting to see, like, the Bat family in what is essentially, for them, their last fight. Um, or at least they believe it at the moment. And you see that they're willing to fight until their last breath. Even characters that are villains, like the Joker, is willing to fight until he can't fight anymore. 
to stop this threat that clearly is never going to end, right? Clearly, they're never going to win this battle. But you even see the moments of hope, like when they think that they've defeated this this bogus Superman, um, you know, they think they found a way to stop him. You know, uh, Batman is able to resurrect all his allies with the the um, the Black Lantern ring. Like, there's so many moments where it's like, these guys just do not give up. And I love seeing the DC heroes like that. It um, it, I think it it feels uh, ceremonious in the same way that like, you know, um, that that moment in like Endgame does, where right? where it's like, oh, the cavalry's here, right? right? Like it, it has that kind of like largeness to it of like this feels like a grand final battle. This feels like a fight for the multiverse, you know, and like it has that weight to it, you know. And they managed to still fit in some of the, like, Dark Knight's humor um, that is present. Uh, But I don't feel like it really ever undercuts, like, the magnitude that it feels like they establish, you know? Um, Which is cool, because I think that is something this book has struggled with sometimes, is, like, kind of the two different tones that it juggles, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think think Snyder uh, nailed it more than he didn't. In this issue, and I think part of why I feel that way is because now that the character fighting the Batman who laughs wasn't Perpetua, someone I don't care about, but Wonder Woman, someone that I do care about, it made the stakes feel super important. Seeing these characters on the losing end made the stakes feel important. You know, there were those moments of quippiness or whatever, but for the most part, everybody was taking this real serious. And whenever that happens, that makes me feel like the stuff matters. So I got a lot out of this issue um, from that perspective. Uh, The page of, like I I referenced before, the Bat family, um, Bane fighting alongside them. They resurrect Alfred. (laughs) They resurrected Alfred. Yeah, like that stuff really landed with me. That stuff definitely, um, I felt it. I felt it. So I liked all that. Um, Lex Luthor fighting on the side of good. Yeah, him sacrificing himself to to defeat the the like Black Sun Superman or whatever yeah. like was really cool. Right, and again, like he doesn't know that he'll survive this. In fact, he I don't know that he does survive this. But heroes get heroes and villains that are getting red is resurrected at the end or whatever. And so Lex, a a a, a, a tremendously selfish character is willing to sacrifice his life for Earth. And that's what I love to see. And that's something that DC does. And and this isn't the first time I've seen the, the, the heroes and villains team up, but it was super effective to see that Lex Luthor was willing to put any other agenda aside to save the world. And the fact that he, like, goes and, like, not only goes to help Clark, but, like, actively is, like, go. Like, you got to go do other shit. Like, right. I'm going to end this right now. Like, is, like, very, like, out of character, you know? But not, like, to the point where it feels atonal, right? right. Like, it's just, like, uh, yeah. It, yeah. It, it's it's an earned thing because even he recognizes how dire this situation is. That all that other stuff has to be put to the side. That was also one of my favorite jokes um, was when he's like, uh, how exactly does he say it? The thing about I'm going to kill at least one Superman or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. 
Oh, no way the, this universe ends without me getting to kill at least one damn Superman. Now go. <laughs> <laughs> like that was that was solid. Yeah. Um, because that's like a moment of levity, but it also is like that's believable, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> absolutely. Um, the Batman who laughs for me has definitely become a character that I've stopped caring about because I'm over it. Yeah, there was a point at which. He wasn't all powerful, where he still was, you know, not infinite feet tall, and he felt like he could be dealt with, even though he was super powerful. But once you take characters to this point, I stop caring. Um, him and Wonder Woman throwing planets at each other or whatever, is, I don't care about that. Um, it's because of, like, I, I think when you have a character... Um, that's as powerful as Dr. Manhattan, right? And that was the whole conceit of this, was that he became this powerful because he stole Dr. Manhattan's powers, basically. Uh, it's only interesting if they don't want to fight. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's only interesting if they're above everything. Like, it, it, the fact that he's, like, getting down in the mud um, doesn't work. It's not... It doesn't feel like it has weight. And it also doesn't make any sense. Because yes. the book tells you like three times that Wonder Woman's stronger or not as strong as him, and there's no way she can beat him, and then she just beats him anyway. And there's no real reason why, you know. It's not like she gets stronger. It's not like you know, oh, the power of hope. Or it's just she just wins because she's Wonder Woman and she's the good guy. So of course she prevails and whatever. Okay. And yeah, exactly. And then like we see him throwing just straight up planets at people, but he can't kill all these heroes like why are they alive you know yeah like and then there's like the point where like he depowers the teen titans and it's like why don't you just depower everybody yeah like why are you letting them even have a chance because you're so confident that you're gonna win that like it doesn't matter it's like that's dumb you know like that's stupid that's like not a believable thing that a character of that strength and and apparent intelligence and everything would leave up to chance like why Right, and that's that's the the fine line that you have to walk whenever you empower a character to this degree. In Secret Wars by Jonathan Hickman, Doctor Doom became all powerful, but he had a fatal flaw, which was that he lacked uh, confidence in himself, and he's also phenomenally arrogant. And we know that about Doctor Doom. So you can always refer to those things in your mind whenever you might have those questions, and also the book references them as well. Whereas here. He doesn't appear to have any type of failing whatsoever. Doc, even Dr. Manhattan, even though, like you said, he didn't even want conflict, he um, didn't care about anything. So everything was like irrelevant to him. Clearly, the man who laughs has skin in the game. Clearly, he wants uh, something specific. He, he wants to end everything. And he's worried about these hands coming and all this extra stuff. He feels like he's the only one who can stop the hands. Okay, so kill everybody, stop the hands, and you win. But no, he doesn't want to do that. He wants to right. team up with Wonder Woman for some reason. Why? Well, because he waited until she was this fucking powerful that now she can actually threaten him. Right. And she might not be able to beat him, but she can fuck him up enough that his plans fail. So yeah. like, and th that's, he's the architect of his own destruction. If he would have killed her the last fucking six issues when they've interacted like nine times and he's like, I could fucking kill you in one second if I wanted to, then do it. Like, you know, yeah. otherwise like we're just, we're just spitting in the wind, you exactly. know, like you're just telling me that like, it, you know what it is, is it's, it's, uh, 
it's the um that scene from Dragon Ball Z, right? Where it's like, ah, it's over nine thousand. It's just that you're just telling me that somebody's really strong, and then and then oh, but our guy. She's stronger though, though you know. Like I know she looked weaker, but she was just concealing her power level, dog. She's actually stronger because she's Wonder Woman, and that's all it is. That and it just then it's just action figures banging together. And I know that like I've said that this book has been good because it's that, but this issue is the cardinal sin of any dumb fun thing is when you then try to explain it because then it doesn't work. It's the same reason that holding up a fucking mirror to a movie monster ruins it. You know, it's it's better when you don't know. It's better when you have to ask those questions or answer them yourself. You know, um, as soon as you're like, OK, right. So here's how the chaos energy works. And now we're resetting the universe. So all the stories, but none of the stories. And it's just like you're you're just expositing at me and and it, it, you, it loses all meaning. It loses all grounding. And that same momentum, that same stakes that we described earlier that you feel on the battlefield it just washes away. Absolutely. And 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 that kind of brings me to the rest of the book, which is what I didn't like. Um, the, you know, the conversation between Wonder Woman and the hand who made itself look like her. Um, Artistically, that was a cool moment. Yes. Yes. It's a very, but- very good. I mean, Greg Capullo annihilates this book, right? Like, yeah, he, he did a tremendous job. But what, what's being said is just like, okay, they're grateful that Wonder Woman didn't choose to team up with the man who laughs in order to, to stop the hands. Okay, so now you're going to give them a gift. What's the gift? Uh, 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 so it says, you and your kind, you fought for good knowing we would undo you anyway. You saved us when we would not have saved you. We have seen no other multiverse do something so foolish or admirable. As such, you have caused us to rethink some of our methods. So first of all, if you were going to end them regardless, why is it admirable that they that they didn't try to save themselves from you? That is, that's odd. Um, but then uh, Wonder Woman says, then our multiverse, and this hand says, will be restored, but quite different than before. First, all history, all stories will be remembered and set once and for all. We have seen, too, that perhaps there is no place for walls or boundaries when it comes to your kind, so we shall remove them. But know that no reality has been constructed this way before. Everything will be new to you and to us. Greater threats, but greater possibilities as well. That's so silly. What is, what, why does this hand or whatever it is, this creature, this being, care about that? That all stories and all histories will be real? Like, what? Yeah, because, like, I think it literally makes sense in the way that they've explained it, but it's not satisfying, and it also, like, doesn't... I don't fully understand what that means. And you took how many word balloons to try to explain it to me, right? Because you say, like, okay, there'll be no boundaries, and there's never been a universe like this. It's like, so what does that... What does that actually entail? You know, like, how does that work? Like... And, and and the reality is, I don't need to know, but you bothered to tell me. So now I feel like I need to know. If you would, if this had just ended, and it was like we're resetting, you know, we're we're reestablishing a new balance to the multiverse, and 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 now it's the omniverse, and this is what how it, like that would have been enough. But once you get into like, you know, once you start telling me like this is how it's constructed, 
Like, it has to make sense then. And it doesn't, because of course it doesn't make sense. It's fucking nonsense. It's inherently nonsense. It's the rewriting and rewriting of canon over the last hundred years. But, like, once you try to go and be like the source wall and like establish all these like metaphysical things, but then say we're knocking all of that down, but somehow it still works. The fuck? How? But why wouldn't the solution just be okay? Everything's undone. Everything that happened recently is undone. Why? Why does it have to be? Oh, they like there's gonna be all realities exist, coexisting, and everything is real and. What is that? I remember there is something where they make that comment um, where it's just like Wonder Woman says something about like, oh, like we won't just find ourselves younger and like reset and like ultimate, po- you know, all these possibilities and blah, blah, blah. Like it has to be different than that. You know why? Um, I, I, I'm uh, again. Right. Who? OK, sure. <laughs> it, it, it just it just doesn't make sense. Uh, someone says, or Flash says, as we know, with Diana's sacrifice, the timeline was unknotted once and for all, and all our memories returned. The, the timeline was unknotted. What? What? They did explain that earlier. If you'll recall, there was that thing where they showed her the lasso of truth, and it was like the timeline is like the lasso, but now it's got all these knots from where the crisis events have happened, and and blah 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 blah. Oh, I remember it. Oh, okay. But okay. that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. Um, it also, to me, didn't make any sense that he's like, as we all know, <laughs> you know, as as we're all well aware, right. the timeline has been unknotted, and it's like, how do you know that exactly? Yeah. Uh, and then and then, uh, Hawk Girl says, <laughs> myriad new futures are opening up, and as hypertime heals, we'll likely experience flashes of them, and even alternate paths in pretty epic fashion. Alternate pass. Fly, what? What? It, it, you know what it how is. Would you, and how would you experience that? Right. Yeah. What does that mean for you as a as a person? And and what it is is that DC loves to try to explain what they're doing in editorial in the comic. That's you want idea. to undo continuity and make it so that you can tell any kind of story you want. You want things to be as loose as possible. And so instead of just doing that, they feel the need to explain that in the books. No, it makes sense. But it, it makes sense. And it doesn't make sense. And it's like, <laughs> cut it out. Cut it out. You don't have to do this. And that is what kills me so much. Well, yeah, okay. That's what kills me so much about this whole thing that DC's doing. And I and I and I'm saying this in relation to Marvel because Marvel really doesn't have any type of like logic in terms of anything. You just read the books, they are what they are. It is in continuity or it's not and you know that and that's all. If something is not in continuity, you know because like uh I'm trying to think of a good example of something that's decidedly not in continuity. Um this, the upcoming X-Men books that they're doing where right. they're going to be like taking place within the margins of past stories. Okay, fine. Sure. Why not? Uh, the stuff like once before when Spider – I think it was Spider-Gwen or Gwenpool when they were from an alternate 
reality. Sure, yeah. whatever. And then now they're in this reality. Miles Morales was in six one six. Now he's not. Now he's in this. Now he's in. Or, or I'm sorry, he was in reverse. Yeah. Now <laughs> he's in six one six. Great. Sure. Why not? There's no. There's never like this whole explanation. It's just what it is, and you accept it, and you read the books. For some reason, with DC, it's always way overcomplicated, and it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Well, and like to be fair. Marvel did do Secret Wars, but that's once. No, but what? But you tell me then. What was the over explanation, and how did Marvel markedly change in terms of continuity, other than the Ultimate Universe, that you needed this big explanation about? And that's the thing is, I, I don't even feel like it was like a big explanation. It was just like, oh, the multiverse is fucked up, and the universes are colliding, and there's going to be a new status quo. But that and was. Yet- That was because of a story that had been being told for years right? where everything ended and then everything got reset. So basically, if you never read Secret Wars and you just like stopped before it and picked up after it and you bought, say, Spider-Man, it was Spider-Man. Right. That's all. And that's the thing is they – the difference to, to what you pointed out, right, is that they use a in-universe storyline as the the kind of, like, uh, excuse for doing the stuff that they were going to do anyway. Where it was like, okay, we wanna, we're going to end Ultimate, but we want to pull Miles in. We also are going to use this same opportunity to pull in Spider-Gwen because she's popular and, you know, oh, uh, whatever characters we want from any other timeline, any other reality, they're all in 616 now. And it's new and it's gone forward. But, like, it also it, – it wasn't, like, a crisis. It wasn't a new 52. It wasn't, like, a line in the sand. This is a hard fucking reboot, you know? It was elegant and it wasn't – there was no gears turning moment. Go back to the last issue of Secret Wars. The most you really get is that the Fantastic Four are now creating new worlds and new – they're repopulating – the multiverse or the universe or whatever phrasing they used. Um, and that's what they're doing now. And everything is, everything is, is, is harmonious again. That's it. That's all. It's how many pages of establishing this shit were there? Like one, two, three, four, five, six, eight. Yeah. Nine, ten. Yeah. It's like the last 10 pages of the book. Right. And I'm and I'm lost and I'm still confused. It's just it's just sloppy and it's not elegant and and by the way, don't blame Scott Snyder because this is not necessarily what he wants. This is what editorial is telling him he has to do. Yeah, this is just not how you should do this. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. What if Wonder Woman has her little conversation with the hand? And the hand is like, for your sacrifice, we will restore your world the way it was. And we will restore everyone who died in this conflict. And things will be anew. And then the issue ends. And then you pick up whatever's next. And they don't even reference this. And it is what it is. Yeah. Or, like, again, even if you wanted to do... because. I think even if you wanted to do the whole like 
you know, for for your heroism, like we are restoring your multiverse and and blah 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 blah. And you know, we have realized that you know we have never seen any other multiverse that that breeds this kind of heroism and altruism and everything. So we have decided to restore all of the timelines, all of the different Earths are back, and you know the the multiverse is uh, is like born anew, and there will be new multiverses as well as everyone that's ever disappeared or, or been gone or whatever all the light multiverses are or timelines whatever are are solidified and under the the protection of the hand so it's this new frontier there are all these other like this fresh teeming life in the omniverse but you know you're good now that's it and and just use that as a jumping off point right and every book picks up somewhere in the omniverse and then that's all that's it it's clean and it doesn't have to get into the like, you know, we're tearing down the source wall, basically stuff, you know? Yeah, it's 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 for me, it's way too uh, way too extra, too much, too much dialogue, too much over explaining. I I'm glad this is over with, uh, but but it doesn't enthuse me for the future. And by the way. <laughs> None of that has anything to do with future state. Right. Yeah. It's like we're we're at a whole new status quo anyway. Like this book doesn't if you if you end with this and then you immediately pick up future state, how did reading this establish future state? Someone could say, well, this wasn't meant to establish future state. It was meant to establish infinite frontier. Okay, so then why is future state a, a thing? If 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 the the thread is metal to infinite frontier, why does future state exist? Right, and 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 the reason is because behind the scenes they already had this, they had already been working on this from the five G initiative. So they're like, well, we might as well do something with it. But infinite frontier, and I guess at this point we're just into like the what does this mean yeah. for DC portion. Right. Um, Infinite Frontier feels like, you know what? We were so tired of Dan Didio, so tired of the restrictions, so tired of the constraints, so tired of continuity. We're going to break free from that. We're going to do whatever we want. That's what it feels like editorial is saying. In fact, um, I'm going to let you wrap because there's a tweet that I'm going to pull up that almost says what I just said. And it's from someone in editorial at DC. So... Yeah, what do you what do you make of what this means for DC going forward? Uh, it, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out because I think it is an unprecedented move, and the the problems with it that exist exist. You know, like and we we've talked about them in, in a few main topics. I do think that there is an opportunity for for this to end up being something good in the long run. But, you know, I think that um, a lot of the the problems that you've outlined are serious concerns. And I think the reason that I am more concerned about it now than I might have been on the at the onset is that I don't have a lot of faith in the people at the wheel at DC right now um, because things feel like they're being done so haphazardly. It's like... Do I think the idea of like a, a continuity light or continuity free um, 
future for DC is inherently bad? No, I don't. I think there's a version of that that does make sense. Um, but I don't know that this leadership is this, the leadership to make that happen. You know, and I also think that them doing it on the heels of, you know, some of the other decisions they've made in recent memory, right? Like establishing Black Label as a place for that or establishing, you know, um, these imprints that that can be a little bit more free like Young Animal was or like, you know, uh, any of that kind of stuff. It's like, well, you did that and then didn't commit to it or like or like did it, but it, it wasn't quite what we had originally been sold or it was a messy journey to get there or, you know, there were all these compromises along the way and then now we're doing this other big kind of like reset status quo. Like this is going to be what we do from now on and it's like, do you have the vision to follow through on that? Like, are, are you doing this just to shake things up or because you really have a, a viewpoint for how this makes DC Comics better now, a year from now, five years from now, and 10 years from now? Right. And I don't know that that vision is there. Um, and that's what I worry about more than anything, you know, because I, I, I don't know, like I look at something like, like House and Powers and I feel like the 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 era of X-Men that we're in right now is such an interesting example for how I think what DC's talking about can work. Hmm. Because I look at this era of X-Men and it weirdly, you know, we we talked about it like when we went to that um you know, House and uh the the power, House Powers era X-Men panel at Comic-Con a couple years ago. Sure. And they talked about how what was so exciting about Krakoa was that it put every mutant back on the board, right? Like that it was this thing that allowed them to reach into this vast, vast library of X-Men characters and history and decide what was important and what wasn't. Um, and what was going to feed into their stories and, and what wouldn't. And that has worked so well because you look at this era of X-Men and I think it's an era that, you know, if you're a longtime fan, uh, there's there are those callbacks to history and there are those those roots and, and that, that, that stuff that you need to have storytelling that feels lived in. And, like, that's what's great about superhero, these universes, right, that they have that age and that history. Um, that you can leverage, but like when you're a slave to it or when it's like a thing that you're constantly having to readjust and, and pivot and whatever, like it does get unwieldy and it does get in its own way. And the fact that like you can look at house and powers and that it can, uh, build on history or not, I think is a strength. Um, but that's also with one of the best writers in the industry at the helm with an IP that is extremely valuable, extremely broad, and that had been almost dormant. So it's like a perfect storm for that. And and it hasn't been perfect, but it's been good. And I think DC can do that with this. It's just a matter of will they? It's a matter of do they have somebody like there to steer the ship and put the right people, you know, at the reins? And it's too early to say that now. Um, but I think that that coupled with some of these business decisions, like moving your comics to Tuesdays, like having this thing that creates ripples with retailers, uh, increasing the price of your product, you know, um, when people are are hurting financially, like all those things are things that could hurt this, even if the stories are good, even if the execution is good. 
So the only the only issue I take with what you said is that um, the X Men stuff that they're doing now is very much a continuation of and builds on the foundation of everything that came before. You know, there's no there there is no need to it, it's a it's an in story thing. It's an in story thing. Nothing changes. The past is still the past. This is just the future. Whereas with 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 what DC's doing, they're saying uh, all of it happened. Everything is real, um, but there's no continuity. But there is. You'll have to figure that out. Blah blah blah. And it's just like, whoa, my head wants to explode. So Andy Corey is a former DC editor. He was let go within the the firings that we have seen over the last year. That have taken place. And so he said the following. DC readers, what you're seeing this week is the first round of DC Universe stories unleashed by an editorial staff freed from the constraints of the recent past. The visions of tremendously talented and truly passionate DC storytellers are on display in these future state books. The recent past. The constraints of the recent past. What's he talking about? In my mind, what he's talking about is the endeavor to do 5G and how constrained they probably felt in having to so tightly wind DC's um, uh, DC's history to make everything make sense. And that's what Dan Didio's big mission was. We talked about how he probably got fired because there were so many people who were angry with him for how overworked they were or for how he treated them, which we, which we had read uh, some rumblings of. Um, but then also this being a direction that DC just simply didn't want to go in. And I think Andy is speaking directly to that. He said, the first round of DC stories unleashed by an editorial staff freed from the constraints. An editorial staff. Not creators. Not the people who, who write the stuff or draw it. The, the staff, these are staff ideas. This is what the editorial wants. And I think that when you look at the biggest difference between Marvel and DC, DC's stories seem to be editorially driven a lot of the time. Whereas you look at Marvel, Secret Wars was a story that John was building to, Jonathan was building to from Avengers number one. Uh, X-Men was the idea that he went and pitched to Marvel. Part of it was something he had wanted to do since he was a kid. And whether or not editorial had a hand in shaping those events, when you read them, they feel organic. When I read this, it feels like a committee put it together, told Scott what to do, and he executed. I agree. Yeah. This feels anything but authentic. Anything but creator driven yeah you know and um and, and i think that there's probably some merit to what you're saying there right where i feel like with with some of the stuff that we're talking about like at marvel like it feels more like a creator has an idea and editorial figures out how you drive from that idea right or like wh- what is the you know how do we leverage that idea into achieving what we need to achieve or what we think we need to achieve yeah. you know um so it feels more earned. We'll see how it ultimately shapes up. We'll see how it ultimately works out. I think, you know, if this is what they feel they need to do, sure, we'll see. Um, 
the story of of metal dark knight's death metal itself uh i do think it the ending of it was made worse by having to include all of that jazz in it and it's unfortunate because otherwise it was going solid um ultimately i'm always going to be a dc fan no matter what there will never come a time when i don't pull dc books Unless they're all digital, at which point I just throw my hands up. DC doesn't want my money anymore. Um, I love these characters, but I would like the stories that we get to be told by creators first and not always an editorial struggle behind the scenes. The difference between um, Doomsday Clock, Heroes in Crisis, Death Metal... With all these big movements and maneuvers, Rebirth, um, the Flashpoint, all these books existing to reestablish what doesn't need to be reestablished, which is just, we love the characters you tell stories about, and you love telling stories about these characters. When you exist in that simple truth, I think that's where you need to, to live to tell great stories, and it doesn't have to be every five or ten years that you're just blowing everything up. But that's my final stance. It's frustrating for me as a fan of these characters. And I don't want this, but this is what it is. And so I'm in for the ride. My my final point um, is to simply say that my hope is what you're saying, that simple truth, is that we love these characters and that creators love telling stories about these characters, is that that will be the long-term benefit of this decision. Right. And... I hope it's that clean. I hope it's that simple. Because if this leads to an era where, you know, any creator can come to DC and be like, here's my idea, and they can just be like, cool. We'll win in the long run if that works out. I hope you're right, man. I, I certainly hope you're right. Um, but we'll leave it there. We will definitely talk Infinite Frontier as... We get closer to that development. Future State. I haven't read the Future State books yet, but I will be tearing into the ones that I have soon, so I might have takes next week. Marco will hopefully be back next week with some takes as well on the books that he picked up and read. Um, so we're we're still fans of DC. We still love DC at the Comics Pals. Don't get it twisted. Um, but, you know, there's a lot to come from them, and it's a big upheaval moment. So hopefully they can handle everything that they're taking on. If you read Dark Knight's Death Metal number seven, and you want to share your thoughts about what happened in the issue, how the future for DC is developing, whether or not you enjoyed some of the future state books that they put out, hit us up at thecomicspals at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media at thecomicspals. Get us on YouTube. While you're there, subscribe, share the video, like it, all that jazz. Helps us out a ton. Free to do. Join our Discord server where we will undoubtedly be talking about all of these things and more. Um, there are many ways to get involved in the conversation post-show with us. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you guys so much. Um, Pete, your plugs. All right. If you guys want to connect with me, I'm at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram. Come chat with me about what uh, you're looking forward to in 2021. Um, whatever art you're checking out, uh, let me know. I could use some recommendations. I'm looking for some new shit. 
Um, so yeah, hit me up with that. If you want to get some more stuff from me, you can go check out uh, the podcast, which posts on Mondays. That's my Nintendo podcast over on loopots.com. Uh, you can check out my band, Long Friend, Time Friend. Um, we are wherever you get your music. We have two singles from our new album that's coming out in February. Up right now, Chemical Change and Mirror. Um, if you like... Uh, political punk music. I hope you'll check it out. It's pretty good. I like it anyway. Um, awesome. <laughs> so uh, Phil is at Cyborg Bebop. I don't know why you'd follow him, but you could. Uh, Marco is at Mr. Marco Animoto. Uh, go send him some well wishes and tell him that tell him that you miss him. That you hope he'll be back on the show next week. Uh, Kale is KaleWard.com at Toto and Toe. Go read his books and uh, uh, buy his stuff. He needs money. <laughs> as for me i'm on twitter and instagram only at sean soapbox hit me up to share your feelings about what dc is is, is doing what they're up to and um how excited you are for the new era of star wars if you got to read the book let me know how it was with that we're the comics pal signing off take care guys see you next week